Hello, and welcome to Friendly Anarchism. This is Catherine. Uh, I have a very cool guest here with me today, but first I wanted to do a quick little pitch. Um, tomorrow, this is being posted on Saturday, August 5th. Tomorrow, the August 6th, uh, Rose City Antifa is doing a really, really interesting action that I think is just awesome, and I want to get them a lot of support on it. So, uh, Joey Gibson's doing another fashy, stupid thing, and they're going to go and use it, um, make that oppression backfire, to raise money for the National Network of Abortion Funds, which is just a wonderful cause, and we're going to talk about that. So, go to their website, rosecityantifa.org. If you click on the top of their website, the pull-down menu, you can go to articles, then go down to the third article. It's uh, Joey Gibson, August 6th fundraiser thing. It'll get all the details there. I also have a link in my um, notes for the for the episode. Okay, so leading into that, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, um, my name is Warren Light. I'm the director of the uh, Wesley Community Center in Eugene. And what is that? What is this community center? Um, the Wesley Center was started in the 1930s as the United Methodist Campus Ministry. Um, we, uh, we, we get a lot of funding, a lot of support from local churches. Uh, however, we're a uh, non-proselytizing space, um, and we work with a lot of uh, underserved communities. Uh, we offer free space to all uh, student groups coming out of um, University of Oregon or uh, uh, the uh, LCC or NCU uh, if they apply and ask for space. So, so we're here mostly to work with young adults to kind of help them find their passions and empower them in their work. That's great. Mm -hmm. It's so cool. I have used the Wesley Center for sure. Um, I've talked before a lot about studying the Serbian Revolution, and one of the things that um, um, Sergei Popovich talks about is how hard it is to find revolutionary space, that sometimes it's easier to find revolutionaries and organizers than it is to find a place to organize. So I think the service that the Wesley Center does uh, is very, very important. Yeah, we really committed to the service. A few years ago, we realized we'd have to sell our old building. And when we started looking at different buildings, uh, uh, some of the suggestions that came in were we could just get a house because we could serve uh, a small group of, um, of United Methodist connected uh, folks there. Um, but our mission is not to just to that community. Our mission is really to the, to the community at large. And so we wanted to find a larger space. We came here on 25th and Harris, and we found uh, what used to be the Reach Center, and we've put in um, quite a bit of money in renovations to make this place uh, pleasant. So in the meantime, we've had a lot of different groups, uh, the CLDC, um, uh, Mobility International, uh, the Chinese Benevolent Association, all kinds of folks have come and uh, used the space uh, to their benefit. So it's fun. Yeah, it's really, really great. I've had a really good time here. I've been to a lot of those different kinds of events. Um, and one of the one of the specialties of your work is in women's issues. It's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today. Yeah, um, I, I think by that um, you're referring to work on um, violence prevention, particularly sexual violence prevention and uh, domestic violence prevention. Um, and uh, uh, though we, um, uh, it has traditionally been seen as women's issues because women have done the leadership. It is, you know, obviously uh, issues for everybody because everybody's affected by it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so so I, I'm uh, the co-chair of the Men's Engagement Committee on the uh, Oregon Sexual Assault Task Force and a member of the Domestic Violence Fatality Review Team. Um, and as a lawyer, sometimes I would uh, do work that would represent uh, survivors of, of um, sexual uh, or domestic violence. So... Yeah, so that's very, very important, and I've spent a lot of time in my life trying to, trying to do things about that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. What other groups in town? Well, uh, I was a member of, of the board at SAS for a few years, and so mm -hmm. SAS, uh, Central Assault Support Service in Lane County, does uh, some great work with survivors in the community. Uh, women's Space is there for folks that are trying to get out of uh, domestic violence. Uh, I want to give a shout out to those groups. Um, there are. <clears throat> informal opportunities for people who who need help and if they communicate with with the wesley center here uh, our phone number is 541-654-8144 uh, 
um, and I'll do my best to try to get them to services that can help them. There are some folks, for instance, that uh, that are more high, high profile and need more um, uh, deliberation in terms of finding safe space than they might at say uh, Women's Space or some of the other folks. So there are some there are some opportunities for uh, for folks that need some some extra help here. Uh, also, a, a shout out to Planned Parenthood here too, because they they've just been amazing partners in doing violence prevention work. Um, and I'm really excited about uh, any group that raises money so that people can have fr free uh, access to abortion. Um, I think that's an incredibly important thing right now with the uh, political backlash and fascism that's going on. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, domestic violence issues, and you said the sexual assault issues and issues of reproductive rights and health mm -hmm. affect everybody, mm -hmm. right? Right. So how does that kind of, how do those things sort of ripple out into society? Well, I mean, <clears throat> there's, uh, <laughs> there's, there's no, uh, I like to, to, when I'm working with, men's groups and all that like to remind there's no there's no man in the room that doesn't have a mother and there's uh there's we're all we're all connected um violence uh, that is experienced by one person in a family is experienced in different ways by others um men uh the most men are not perpetrators of sexual violence but obviously the overwhelming majority of incidents of, of sexual and um interpersonal violence and domestic violence are, uh, those things are, are done by men, um, you know, depending on who you look at for statistics, um, I believe it's somewhere in the 90% range or mm -hmm. more. Um, so, so men are affected because it can, it can be something that, uh, uh, men are at high risk for perpetration. It used to be that people would talk in some ways about people being at high risk for victimization. Um, what we've tried to do over the many years is to change the focus from from risk of victimization which really blames the victim and puts all the all the work on the victim's shoulders to high risk for um, uh, perpetration and so we're, we're trying to work you know with the overall community to see that that isn't done um, this is not to say that that women cannot contribute to dynamics that that lead to perpetration. I think we we see uh, a lot of that in the um, the political environment with uh, with some women who were supportive of policies that are detrimental to women in general. So uh, so you know what we're trying to do is uh, is un is undermine um, sexist efforts, uh, chauvinism, um, uh, efforts that are violent in their very nature. I think that the definition of violence needs needs to be uh, broadened. Um, in common use, uh, I don't think violence is just someone, you know, hitting someone, but all the uh, power dynamics that lead to uh, to persons feeling like they, they have the right to do that. So anything that leads to uh, forms of entitlement, where persons feel like they can stalk people, or or that they have a right to uh, to things that they don't have a right to, those that is violence. Violence is is um, endemic. It's systemic and um, and it needs to be addressed on every level. Um, the only way to deal with violence in primary prevention um, is to is to make it uh, not an option by having equity between all people. You know, so so that's what we're trying to do. And the Wesley Center, just to let you know that the the the, uh, the board, uh, myself, uh, we have many uh, student interns who work here. Uh, we try to make this a, sp a space where people can can be. Um, able to experiment on, uh, you know, and groups can experiment on activities that undoes that violence. So we're here, if you're out there and you're part of a group that's doing work to, uh, to prevent violence, I know No More War's been here. Um, we've had Students for Global Health involved over the years. Um, you know, we're here and uh, we would really like to see you and we really like to help empower your work. How, how do you prevent violence? What does that look like on the ground? Is that workshops? Well, I think, workshops it's, or? Well, I th I think it's a multi-dimensional um, work. Every, everybody has a role in that. And uh, so <clears throat> you might be uh, in... Uh, or I'll give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, one of the local campus bars um, opened up 
of their Friday night, you know, bar, which is like one of their busiest times, to, um, I believe it was Sexual Assault Support Services, might have been one of the other organizations. I'm pretty sure it was uh, SAS. And people were given um, opportunities to look at um, brochures, to find out about services, to talk to people from SAS. Uh, that's, that's violence prevention, and that's in a bar. Um, it might be somebody, uh, one, of, one of my best friends, uh, Patrick Lemon, who was one of the co-founders of Men Can Stop Rape, does a uh, presentation. He'll be doing it here at the Wesley Center in um, October, but he does a presentation called uh, Feminism at the Poker Table, and it talks about how he has responded to people in, you know, in, in a poker room uh, who bring up uh, you know, sexist ideas or use sexist language and what he does to, to get them to rethink some of their concepts. So, so the work can be done in just your daily life, but then there are all kinds of pro projects, trainings. Um, <clears throat> many of the students who've come here and who've uh, done work at the Wesley Center have gone on to, to lead um, projects. Some of them are doing law in service of uh, survivors of sexual assault. Um, some of them are leading um, organizations such as SAS, but in, in other communities. So, so there's just a, there's a lot of ways you can connect to the work. And if you f if you have a passion for the work and you really believe in it, um, you know let's let's have a conversation and maybe we can help you find you know where you would feel comfortable doing that work. But it doesn't it doesn't it, it doesn't need to be siloed. It really is a part of of daily life. Uh, we're trying to to um, to make sure that violence is not a part of daily life. I mean, violence is now. So why is you know practicing nonviolence and undoing violent patterns, why isn't that part of daily work? So, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I guess you can come at it from basically any angle. If, it, it's, if it's sort of a systemic problem, how people move through the world, then mm -hmm. that opens up all sorts of opportunities to come at the problem from different ways and different communities. And mm -hmm. um, Have you seen a lot of interest from men that are worried about being perpetrators? Yeah. I, well, worried about being perpetrators, that's a good question. I... Um, there, there are some men that are, that are struggling with choices that they've made. And, uh, and so there are, and there are, and sometimes I do get individuals that want to talk and share, uh, something in, in their recent past or in their long past about, uh, uh, so, uh something that they've done. Um, most of the men that I meet that are interested in this work really they want to make the world a better place. And they they may have experienced sexual violence. I mean, I'm a survivor of sexual violence myself. There are other men that are. Um, or they may have seen domestic violence in their own home. Or they might uh, have a partner who uh, is a survivor. Uh, lots, of, lots of different ways that men find their connection to, uh, to violence prevention. Um, and some, some, you know, just like Patrick, uh, uh, just believe in this and believe in the work and, uh, uh, you know, have done a lot of a great work because of that. Um, the other thing is any kind of oppression contributes to, to all violence. So, you know, we're looking at, I mean, I'm, I'm a white male, um, heterosexual. I work for an institution that, uh, that's uh, connected to, uh, to religion um, and I'm a lawyer, so I'm connected to the to the government system. All these things are forms of uh, of entitlement. They're uh, things that all need to be addressed. So I'm I'm working as a corrupt person in corrupt uh, organizations to try to undo corruption, um, and working on myself at the same time. And so I think that we need to we need to be honest about that. And I don't think that means that um, you know. They're all horrible people, but we need to recognize that uh, it's easy to slip into patterns that are reinforced by people who are unhealthy in terms of t power dynamics and violence. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we have, I mean, the leadership of, of our country right now is based on, on, um, on violence and it's based on uh, inequity. And uh, I mean, we've got, you know, attorney general who's looking to make the world safe for white college students. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just unbelievable uh, how far people can go to reinforce patterns of violence. Um, and so anything that, um, anytime that we're addressing racism, we're addressing violence. Anytime we're addressing ableism or um, um, heterosexism or sexism um, or, or ageism, I mean, we're addressing violence. Not They don't have the same dynamics, and we have to recognize that people's experience of those violence, um, people who are, who are hurt by those violence, their experience is different. Their narrative belongs to them, and it's unique. But all that violence is connected um, in, in ways to power and inequity. So, so we want to you know, do what we can to deal with that. Yeah, I think intersectionality is becoming more and more prominent in these discussions, which is really, really great and really, really important when talking about sexual violence as perpetrated against somebody who's white versus against somebody who is not white. I think those are just, they're just different. You can talk about like indigenous communities. I think um, the, a, a white woman being raped will never, could never, I think, reach the same level of brutality and dehumanization as a colonizer white man raping a indigenous woman because there's just like this extra level of entitlement there that can't be divorced from that kind of act. Do you I, think, how do you feel I would, about that? Well, I would rephrase that in a way. I mean, um, I, I, I know what you're saying and I, uh, and I appreciate the, um, the magnitude of the difference um, both personally and psycholo- uh, um, sociologically um, culturally, mm-hmm. um, because there is cultural trauma as well. Um, I, I want to move away from a place where we compare the, um, the devastation that people experience in the violence that they've experienced, um, one person to another. In other words, what, uh, what I would say is, all right, I'm a male survivor and I have many friends who are male survivors. Um, the ones that are healthier, that I know, recognize that as male survivors, um, they still are men in a place where, in, in a culture where men have a tremendous amount of entitlement and men um, are, li- are more likely to be perpetrators of, of violence. So in our conversations with other, uh, other persons, um, with women, for example, in terms of uh, dealing with violence prevention, uh, a lot of survive, male survivors um, can come off as being very entitled and, um, and really be uh, uh, part of the problem um, in perpetrating additional violence um, because, because they don't recognize that they, you know, just because you're a male survivor doesn't mean you can, can't be sexist. Just because you're, um, uh, well, because you're, you know, Racist doesn't mean uh, because you're uh, gay doesn't mean you can't be racist because you're you're a person of color doesn't mean you can't be heterosexist. I mean, there's a, there's you know there's a lot of um, of violence that we can bring in in our conversations. That being said, I think it's really important to have honest conversations. And so uh, so when we are dealing with with uh, intersectionality, I I think that we need to recognize that we're looking at um, um, broad and um, unique narrative streams that will sometimes be in tension with each other and sometimes will, um, will be in harmony. Okay, so sometimes, so sometimes, you know, it's healthy for us to have a, a conversation where, um, where one part of the community expresses anger and says, I'm not being heard. Um, and I think you see that in, in, um, in some of the conversations um, that come out of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement as well. Um, there, are, there are persons who are not black who are, who are connected to some of those conversations. And if they're, if they're doing productive work, they're hearing anger that they don't have or that, uh, that they sometimes can ins- inspire. So it's 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 fair to say that our conversations aren't all going to be you know, you know. Wow, isn't it great that we're all wonderfully in tune? Um, I think it's re- we're we're far from that. We're not living in 
in um, in uh, the best place, mm-hmm. and we're not we're trying to move to a better place, and so it's going to be a painful, uh, long road in some ways, um, but um, but it need but it needs to be done every day, immediately every day. Um, people have waited too long for for uh, justice, and we're going in the wrong direction in many in many uh, arenas. So. Mm-hmm. Because issues of sexual violence are so delicate mm-hmm. and so painful, I think that's the moment when also trying to bring like white fragility into the conversation is ex- especially difficult, and uh, which is something that needs to be addressed. Okay, what what is white fragility exactly in in your mind? Because I've heard it in different contexts, so I want to make sure I understand that point. Um, for me, white fragility is the defensiveness of mm-hmm. being unable to take any criticism, being unable to hear that they're racist, especially mm-hmm. that happens a lot with people who are liberal, okay. who think that they're good allies, yeah. but um, are very, very touchy about being called out on mm-hmm. any issues surrounding race. So what I'm hearing is white fragility is another side of entitlement and yeah. another side of white racism. Yeah, See, exactly. It's, it's it, and it, it's interesting. I'm glad I'm glad you brought that issue up because we've also I've had, we, I've been in groups where they talk about white guilt and things like this, um, and I see them all as being connected to to white entitlement, white racism, because it's it, it's another way of saying this is all about me. You know, this is about my feelings rather than justice for someone who uh, who doesn't have my um, you know my skin color, or my or my money, or my you know my background, or whatever. Uh, you know, let's let's be honest uh, that that you know feelings matter in our lives and day to day. But when we're talking about justice issues, we're not talking about we're not talking about just feelings and perceptions. We're talking about reality. Uh, we're talking about um, economic differences. We're talking about uh, burdens of of uh, of life and of history, and we're talking about real suffering, uh, which is a little different than you know you're hurting my feelings because you're telling me the truth about my racism. I, I, yeah, a little, <laughs> I, little bit. <laughs> I, obviously, it's an understatement, but uh, uh, but no, I mean I you know it's uh, it, there is there we all have our personal um, issues and and we all have our personal weaknesses and, and temptations and things like this. And I think that when you have so much entitlement and you're so used to to living out in a world of of that entitlement, it's just easy to go the way of fragility or guilt or, or those things instead of living in a place that is uh, that shares hurt. Yeah. And recognizes that suffering is real, and um, and that it's not all about you. you yeah, know? that's one of the worst things. I, I I run into. In fact, that's what this whole thing is, as far as I'm concerned. With with um, uh, you know uh, wanting to uh, to look for lawsuits because white students are discriminated against. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I think any student can be discriminated against for some reason. Generally, it's not because they're white. Right? It might be because they're white and disabled, or maybe because they're white and they, they come from a place where they don't have any money, or or maybe because of other uh, other factors. It may be because of uh, the fact that uh, they might be atheists, and I mean atheists are discriminated against in in, in our society. And it's one of the reasons why we we make this space a non proselytizing open space. Yeah. Um, you know, we 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 want to just work with people who want to do good. But, um, but one of the reasons that I think that that is such a, a big issue that connects with uh, a lot of, of white folks um, is because, you know, as white people, we're really used to things being all about us and um, in our minds. I mean, obviously not in the minds of, of the whole community, but um, it's, it's a fantasy um, and it's a destructive, unhealthy, violent fantasy because it is racist, and it needs it needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed by you know p- 
people telling the truth and saying, um, and, and that means other white people too, saying, you know, this is an incredibly racist thing that's being, that's being done by the Department of Justice right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so as far as who should be dealing and addressing racism, that's been a question that a lot of pe- white people have questions about or confused about because on one hand, it's entitled and the wrong thing to do to expect people of color to explain racism to white people, especially when it's, that's a painful thing to do. Like you don't want to bring up just, it seems like randomly throughout your day, all of a sudden it's like, let's talk about the horrible oppression that I've been through. And you know what I mean? Like bringing up that kind of trauma randomly is just a very destructive thing to do. Then also you need as white people to have that, those voices in the room to make sure that you are, so it's like, we need to, how to, you know, create, appropriate spaces for these conversations with appropriate the appropriate people you know i'm speaking to one friend of mine who's a um person of color um she was saying you know we need just people that people of color who are experts who have chosen to engage in these conversations with white people <laughs> right well so well it's it's a calling in some ways in other words um uh, as a survivor um uh, who works in violence prevention dealing with, I mean, this is a, just an example. It's a different context, but it's an example. Um, I've spent a lot of my time working in um, sexual violence prevention. I don't feel called. I don't feel, um, if somebody wants to use it, I don't have a passion for working with offenders. I, I would rather be an advocate for survivors. And, if I, and I do sometimes, um, I am sometimes in contact with, with people who come in and they, you know, confess to me because of, of my my role here, um, in which case I try to get them help. But I realize that I can't do that. It's it's not something that would be healthy for me, and it's not something that would be healthy for them. And so, um, so I think that yeah, there are there are people that will feel more called to trying to to do some education of white folks from you know from from various communities of, of uh, people of color. But um, but in general, I, I, I think I'm going to go back a little bit. I think that uh, there's a there's a neat passage in um, in Micah that says, "Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God." Um, and that's the the three aspects of the of the old uh, prophetic covenant. Uh, the the culmination of the of doing those three things was to be shalom, which was was peace and wholeness. Um, but it starts with do justice. In other words, if you if you are not just being just, then you're how can you possibly have conversations? And being just means that that you you recognize your limitations, and you give an opportunity um, for people to speak about things that matter to them, and recognize that you're not going to hear the whole story, and you're not going to, and they're they're not responsible to tell you the whole story. So. Um, so, like you were saying with a friend, it, you know, they, or, or in terms of communicating, you know, I, I, you, people don't want to spend their whole day feeling like just because, um, you know, something happened to me or because the world is unfair to me, I have to go and educate, whether it's a person's color or survivors, whatever, I have to go and educate people all day long, okay? People don't, people don't want to do that and they don't need to do that. It's unhealthy to do that. Um, probably. I mean, and maybe there's somebody out there that that's that that's where they they feel they need to do. But um, but even if you recognize that somebody's not telling you about something, you have to recognize that all day long, if somebody lives in Eugene and they're a person of color, they're dealing with racism. Um, or or if uh, if they're a person who is dealing um, has a, a, some sort of disability, um, all day long they're dealing with with it's not they're not the same things i'm not saying uh race and disability are the same things but recognize that your your experience day long is different than their experience so that you can be a helpful ally and so that you can open your your heart and your mind to to do the second part of that thing which is to love kindness which is basically to be there for that person if they're your friend or to be there for for a person 
who you do not know, but you see treating unfairly. Treat, I mean, treat, you know, I mean, if you're, you're in a, you know, you're in a line and you recognize that everybody in that line, in, in that business or whatever it is, is being treated one way except for one person. And that person um, is a person of color and everybody else is white and they're treated differently than anybody else. And, you know, be ready to, to stand up and say this, that, you know, talk to talk to the white person who's who's treated them unfairly and say, you can't do that. You know, this is unacceptable. And I find it unacceptable. You know, um, you're not there to you're not there to, to save a person. A person might turn to you and, and say, uh, you know, hey, look, I'm handling it. You know, mind your own business. Respect that. That's fine. But but be there and be ready because, I mean, I, I experience that kind of stuff all the time. And, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're, our, our family is not, is not, um, is not, I mean, my wife, my partner is a person of color and, and other members of my extended family. And so we don't, you know, I mean, we recognize that, uh, that racism doesn't have a, a stopwatch. It's not like you get 30 minutes of racism a day and it's, it's 24 hours and it's every day. If you're dealing, if if you have to deal with racism because because it's a white racist country, and a white racist community, then you're dealing with it all the time. Um, and so for what for white folks, they need to recognize that that's that's the reality. Um, but you don't have to talk about it to white people all the time. Yeah, that I respect that. I hear what you were saying about that. Yeah, yeah. You need um, you, you need to be ready to talk about it if you're going to be an ally. But you. You can, I mean, you can't force things. Everything that is healthy is consensual anyway, isn't it? <laughs> and meet people where they're at. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, you know, and, and be there. You know, be there and be, be really present and really be, be ready. Say, hey, look, this is, this is the, the trajectory that this day has taken because somebody did some stupid racist junk to the person that I care about who's my friend who I'm with. Or to or to our group where persons have been affected more deeply than me, and so I'm going to sit in that space too. And it's not all about me and my feelings, but it's about what's wrong here, and you know what can we do to uh, to be in support. You know. So um, anyway, yeah, I hope that helps. Well, that brings us to the last part. I love um, that passage from Micah, oh, which I love, is walk yeah. humbly with God. I think that's the most important, most misunderstood part. Right, because you can't, like, why you're being an ally, you know, or, like, why you are trying to do these things. I think that's really important. We talk a lot about false allyship and Mm -hmm. people wanting the gold stars, you know, Mm -hmm. and saying, like, well, I did, uh, I tried to stop racism in this one way today, like, stamp, done, I'm awesome, Mm -hmm. moving on, or, like, you know. Well, here's what we can, we can, you know, what does that last phrase mean? To me, it means taking whatever it is that you believe and sticking it in your pocket and just being a, being a mensch, being a person. It means, um, because it doesn't say walking with God. If it, if it was about faith, you know, um, I want you to do justice, love kindness, and be a strong believer, then it would have just said, and walk with God. But the passage says walk humbly, which to me means that everybody else's impressions of what God is, what God isn't, if there is a God, if there isn't a God, everybody's impressions are as valid as yours. To me, the, that, that last passage saves us from being ideologues and dogmatics and, and uh, fanatics and fascists. So that we can, you know, we can say, you know, whatever, it, I mean, because it was, a, it was a statement to a community of believers. It says, yeah, right, I recognize you need to do justice. You're not doing that very well. You need, to, you need to be more kind. You're not doing that very well. But you also need to be a lot more humble about what you believe because you're running around crowing and, and you're saying that you're better than other folks because of what you believe, and that's bullshit. And so, <laughs> so to me, the walk humbly is, is like, I mean, if you could almost stop right there. But the reason that it, it has that second part, the walk humbly with your God, is not because they wanted to inspire faith, but because they wanted to inspire openness and community and a community that cuts across whatever spiritual discipline or 
or ideological discipline you have. So if you are, you know, if you are an agnostic or or an atheist or or um, you know a, a, a Baptist or or you know whatever, um, whatever it is that is your meta perspective, it's not as important as the way you treat people. Whatever it is, so that's. I mean, I'm not saying that it isn't important because I think those things are important. Our conversations about those things, but it's not as important as doing justice and loving kindness. You got to be humble about what you believe. As anarchists, we do talk a lot about revolutionary values. That everything you do has to come from a place of revolutionary values because you can't move into spaces of direct democracy or cooperation or trying to dismantle um, oppressive systems if you aren't coming from that place. Mm-hmm. So that um, that really resonates with me, mm-hmm. too. And sometimes, sometimes the walk humbly is I mean, often the hardest one, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, especially if you are the kind of person that is giving your life, trying to, attempting to give your life to others right. it's a live in service it's so easy to kind of slip into not being humble yeah you know so like well, what do you like what practices do you or other people undertake to um have the wholeness of that passage okay so um and i you know this is just this is just personal so it's a personal preference but i i i believe that uh, many great truths are intention and many healthy uh, ways of living are intention. Uh, like, if you were to put it this way, uh, a clothesline. I mean, I know people don't hang their clothes up very much. Uh, but if you do, if you hang your clothes up on a clothesline outside to dry, um, you've got two poles. And what, keeps, what makes that possible, um, that clothesline possible, is the tension between those two poles. That, that, that rope or line or whatever is drawn tight because of the tension of those two poles. And then you can, you can hang all that laundry on there. I think that some truths hang on that kind of tension. So I think there's, there's kind of a, a continuum that is between your, your, your discipline and what I'm hearing you describe when you describe um, what anarchists believe. Okay. Um, and, and you can reject this completely. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, obviously. But, but um, I hear that as, as a discipline, as a, as a um, an ideological or or spiritual, whichever you want to call it, or whatever discipline, um, and that is in tension with you with the the uh, humility piece. In other words, you recognize that you know m- my my life is to be you know humble and open to people that don't have that really strong thing that I believe in that I have passion around, mm-hmm. um, and yet they are. Um, they're human beings with inherent worth and they might have something that not only uh, helps me to to you know grow in, in, in ideas might even help me to um, uh, focus and to formulate my own passion in a different way that is more effective so um, so you know, you, you can find, you know, I think that, I, I mean, you know, going back to what do you do about that, I think, I think you recognize that, that your um, ideology or your meta-perspective, um, whatever your cosmological <laughs> background, uh, that that is a, 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 a wonderful um, uh, gift to you, but it's not everybody's. And it's not, it's, it's, it needs to be regarded with, um, with care, but it also needs to be regarded with a certain amount of humility. And that's, that's what I'm saying. In other words, um, I, I think, you know, you and I had talked about this before. Um, beliefs to me, belief systems, I used to watch when I was a kid especially, but even now, sometimes I like to watch uh, old martial arts movies. Um, and sometimes the worse the better. I mean, because they were just fun, you know. <laughs> yeah. And um, um, and I was a big Bruce Lee uh, fan when I was a kid. And uh, and it's a yeah, it's a another incident of uh, of white American white racism that he was uh, not even thought of to to be the star of uh, of kung fu. They they brought in David Carradine as 
quote half Chinese, you know, <laughs> even though it was inspired by Bruce Lee, right? So, so, but, but in these old movies, a lot of times there were these two characters. They'll be walking toward each other on a road, and they'll end up sparring with with each other. And one of them will say, "Wow, your kung fu is not too bad." <laughs> the other one will say. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, I follow the monkey school or I follow the dragon school or I, you know, um, but they're different schools. And, and I think that our, our ways of thinking about life are in many ways like those schools. They're, they're, they're disciplines. They're ways that help us to navigate, um, the limits of our knowledge, the limits of our, of our, uh, ability to work things through ethically. And the limits of um, of our feelings, and uh, and those those things can be really helpful and productive. Um, I mean, they can be destructive too, particularly if they're not balanced by by a humility that recognizes the value of all of all life and of the earth. Um, so you know, I mean, the, so those uh, the, yeah, so that's that's where I'm at with those things. So you you take a look at it, you say, well, I'm having this ethical dilemma, and I really believe in this, but I also I also wonder if I'm being, you know, if I'm stepping over the line because I believe in this so much that, you know, I'm really having trouble relating to the humanity of somebody else. Um, then, you know, you can you can take a look at that and say, where is it that I'm recognizing my need to be humble here? Where is it that I'm recognizing my own personal values? And sometimes you're going to say, you know what, um, I'm humble enough just to say, you know, what you're what you're doing is something that I find. Um, ethically reprehensible. It's okay to do that. <laughs> I mean, I think it's really important to. Yeah. yeah. I think it's one of the best ways to stay humble that I've found is to just be working with other people. Mm-hmm. So there's the individual prax- um, practices, but also I think like anarchist cooperative praxis mm-hmm. is very effective mm-hmm. or very when it's working well, which mm-hmm. it in keeping you humble because you have to be listening and working with other people and respecting the worth of other people's ideas Mm -hmm. and respecting when your ideas are bad Mm -hmm. and they're, you know, and then other people don't like it, you know? And so there is sort of a continuous process, both in community and sort of individual process in order to work with community, being an anarchist, Mm -hmm. um, which I've found to be, Great, well, very humbling. Because when you when you fuck up, yeah. like you, <laughs> you know, like you fuck up. But there's also sort of it creates sort of a space. There's like some space for that because yeah. you know, which is, which is nice because it's not you get blamed individually necessarily for your, you know, it's just sort of like understood that praxis, cooperative praxis, and direct democracy and these things are hard, yeah. you know. So um, I really I really appreciate that. That's about, cool. That's about anarchists, yeah. yeah. That's great. Well, yeah. I think it's really important to, you know, I had a friend one time say, well, if you if you do such and such, it was it was like 9.30 in the morning, and we were in a meeting, and he said, if you if you do such and such, you'll be making a mistake. And my, my response to him was, uh, that's okay, I'm going to make at least four mistakes before the end of this meeting. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know so not offended by that. I'm actually, I think it's it's good, thanks, you know. and And he was right, you know about what mistake I would have been making. So anyway, so it's, it's, um, it's good. I mean, I also had a friend uh, when we were working through um, dealing with um, uh, different forms of oppression, trying to, to work with an uh, with uh, educational institution to change some of their policies. And we had worked through roles that we were going to take to push the administration to doing some things, uh, or to let's say lure them, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, and and I stepped out of, of the role um, that I was supposed to to have at one point, um, and offered to do something that would have put me in a different role. And my friend who who uh, was was pretty good at catching that just turned to me and he said, "Well, who the hell are you?" And this is and we're sitting on the same side of the table. And, uh, and, and, uh, and then afterwards he comes up to me and he said, I'm really sorry because, because he felt really bad. And I was like, 
It's like, no, that was great. I said, that was <laughs> terrific because, because we, we had agreed on something and, and it was important. And besides, it's a question I always want to come back to, you know, because when you're in the middle of this, and this is really important to, in terms of dealing with your own entitlement or in terms of dealing with um, your own maybe feelings of inadequacy. Um, or your, or dealing with the way people have labeled you, I think it's really important to say, well, who the hell am I? Because, because you need to, you need to respond to those, those false images, and find and find out who you really are. Um, because no matter who you are, no matter um, what you've experienced, there are going to be people telling you that you're less than what you are, or there's going to be people telling you that you can, you know, you can do no wrong just because of something you were born with. It has nothing to do with who you really are. And you need to be able to get rid of those, those fantasies to be able to use your real creativity, mm-hmm. your real imagination, and your liberating power. I get the Richard Rohr daily meditations. Do you know mm-hmm. those? I don't. But, yeah. Do you know Richard Rohr? Yeah, I've, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's a Franciscan. Yeah. Um, I really, he's really great. I, one of the meditations just in the last couple of days was talking about how our process to, um, you know, walk with God or mm-hmm. to move through the world in an ethical way, in a, in a peaceful way, in like a whole way. People often think in religion that it's additive, that you do more and more, you do more and more good works and you like work on yourself and you get more. Um, but what he was saying was like, it's actually subtractive. Is it's 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 confronting. It's taking away those illusions. It's mm-hmm. it's taking away sort of these your um, ideas of what God is, and like taking mm-hmm. you know. So I thought that was really interesting, sort of as a subtractive practice mm-hmm. instead of trying to you know, sort of capitalist to say you just add on more things, you get more stuff, sure. and then you'll be a better person. Right. As opposed to saying, and that's the Quaker thing too, is like simplify, simplify, mm-hmm. simplify, and that's how you become at peace sure. instead, mm-hmm. you know, which is sort of, I, you know, I think capitalism has really warped how we move through the world in general mm-hmm. at all. You know, you know, I'm coming back to issues of sort of dealing with intersectional oppression. I think capitalism has taught us this idea of false scarcity, mm-hmm. that there's only enough, there's only there's a finite amount of pain. Mm -hmm. So if somebody else has more pain, then they're taking a pain away from you. You know, like, so because, you know, it's like, there's enough, there's enough shittiness to go around for everybody. Promise, you know. Something is real. But so, but I think that's true. You know, so I think that's, you know, if you, if. What? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, so if you, you see that in these conversations sometimes where it's like the defensiveness comes from a place where it's like, well, if you're saying that you're in more pain than me, then I must be relatively in less pain, mm-hmm. you know. Which... Well, yeah, and, and one of the values of scholarship is to recognize, and by that I mean, I mean just, just an honest study of something. I don't mean, you know, getting a degree or spending money or anything. I mean, it's just, I mean, if you, if you really study, if you really listen, one of the values of that is to recognize the, the gifts that people give you out of their tradition in the, the Franciscan. I mean, that is a... A, a classic example of something that the Franciscans have have taught for a long, long time in terms of simplicity, and a lot of there's a lot of value in that. Your way also of connecting that to the economic system in terms of uh, critique is is a gift that comes out of your discipline. I, I believe is an anarchist too. Mm-hmm. So um, because because you're dealing with your social t- tools for social analysis that come out of your your discipline. So your kung fu is not bad, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> and neither neither is his. What, so what I'm saying is that what's what's really a kind of a challenge to us, and one of the things that can open up a whole new world for us, is to run into people whose whose views, whose life views, and whose disciplines are so different than our own that when they say something like that, we also see that as a gift sometimes. So yeah. when they say something like, well, you know, this is a, um, you know, well, when they reformulate something, we've never thought about it that way before, and it just sounds strange to us, okay? Um, 
it may be it may be a real opportunity to uh, to experience a different level of creativity as we recognize that within our own structures and our own ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the one of the most um, one of the most exciting things is to is to be in a community that is very different than what you've experienced in your life because because then you will start to um, to connect with completely with completely novel ways of looking at the world and you'll never be bored. In, you know, one of the things that I think is really just pathetic about uh, about you know the the folks on the on the uh, particularly the religious right and everything at this point in in the world that they're trying to uh, to create in America, you know, put up walls and all this kind of crazy stuff. Uh, the, is, the ethno state, the white ethno state. Right, right, Ex- yeah. exactly, exactly. I mean, talk about the most boring. I mean, besides being, <laughs> uh, besides being um, violent, destructive, evil, uh, unethical, whatever you want to call, um, all those things are true. I think, um, in, in my mind, but it's also boring as shit. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's 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 like yeah, it's it's like every um, you know every sort of bad comedy that came out of the 70s and 80s where there was, you know, the, the, this this group of people like, the, you know, Avenger the Nerds or whatever. There were all these comedies about there are people that aren't accepted and they're, they're these these golden white people that are the ones that, that are the supposed to be the the, uh, the 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 great ones, but they're so boring and, and our lives are so much more interesting and, you know, and of course, you know, they, they win in the end and all, but life isn't like that. We have to, we have to keep working. We have to keep constructing. We have to keep uh, shaking the world of people who willingly are uh, doing everything they can to um, to rob people of their creativity, their identity, um, through cultural appropriation, through through all kinds of uh, of discrimination, etc. Mm. I mean, one of the one of the things that drives me crazy is uh, over the last couple of years, all these. Uh, in, in Hollywood movies, all these parts that really should be going to to Asian actors. Yeah, the uh, um, Emma Stone yeah, thing. Uh, yeah, Emma Stone. Um, what, what's the name of uh, in Doctor Strange? There was uh, the the Brit that I forget her name, but she won the Oscar. And um, anyway, um, just uh, several. You know, I mean, there's there's been there've been dozens of them. I think. Yeah. In, in the last couple of years, and I mean, they've always, they've always, it's been something that's been around for a long time. But, but now, I mean, you don't know better now. Yeah. You know, it's, right? it's ridiculous. Yeah. I, talking about being boring, the sort of like monoculture mm-hmm. of culture. Mm-hmm. So it is boring, and yeah. I think, but to stay racist and not be boring, you have to appropriate. That's the only your only. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> like that's, well, that's even, your only. Well, actually, that that makes it even more boring because yeah. it's yeah it's. <laughs> In um, uh, the 1950s, there was a, a singer. I mean, and I know this because people wrote stuff about it. I saw films about it much later on. But there, there was a, a singer named Pat Boone who was as, as white as white could be. And um, he would co-opt um, songs. He would you know, take songs from um, Fats Domino and some of the African-American um, early rock and roll folks and um and he would sing them in a in a very acceptable white way and i mean it, it's still what's happening you know and um it's just it's ridiculous and it's just it's just unbelievable yeah the systemic racism yeah yeah i mean it's it's horrible because i mean it it you know it, it takes away it takes away money and opportunity for you know for performers too but it's 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 unbelievably um, laughable in terms of its lack of creativity and yeah. and um, I mean it's just know, make up your own just, songs. It's just not it's just not good. No, it's not good. It's just not good. Just stop. It's not good. Well, we have about five minutes left. Is there any um, issue that you really want to get out to the world? Oh gosh. Um, well, all right. The last. Going back to one of my main things, um, I think that we need to have a much 
broader and deeper discussion around the economics of sexual violence and the economics of uh, domestic violence. And uh, if you look at the uh, Kaiser Permanente ACE study, um, which talks about the the uh, physical and emotional uh, repercussions from from uh, child abuse, for instance, um, and how much that affects a person's life, it has a tremendous financial impact on people. Uh, institutions and and the overall culture still rely on survivors to pay the cost of their own abuse because and we don't recognize that and we don't provide support in other words you know when they're talking about health care uh, one of the things they're talking about is is uh, is making survivors pay more for something that happened to them that they couldn't that they had no control over um, and when we talk about um, about policies to try to prevent child abuse, a lot of times um, we don't look at um, at the the financial and economical implications. A quick example: um, one of the insurance companies recently um, shows a new pattern. Uh, the insurance companies were getting churches to do to do policies to pre- prevent child abuse within their buildings. Okay. They were, they were actually leading that uh, back in the 90s because they didn't want to get sued. I mean, it was all financial, but, but at least it made the churches start to talk about child abuse and prevention of child abuse. Uh, the churches have gone beyond that. Many of the, many of the denominations are, are doing some pretty creative things and, and trying to get people to deal with child abuse not only in their church but outside too, which is really what they should have been doing all along. But what has happened recently is that one of the insurance companies has been going around recommending for churches to lower the limits of their liability policies um, to $50,000 per claim. So in in the case of a child abuse claim within within a church, there would only be $50,000 for the the survivor. The insurance company then benefits because they don't have to to, uh, do any more uh, defensive work as an attorney, as, you know, give give attorneys, uh, attorney um, work. Plus, they don't have to write a check for a million dollars to the survivor. Um, so the survivor, who usually doesn't come out um, for many, many years, in the case of child abuse, um, like 20, 30 years later, dealing with all kinds of bills, all kinds of, of uh, physical and emotional issues that they've, that they've worked through um, or that they're working on, um, that that person then gets, you know, here's $50,000 less, you know, attorney's fees, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, you know, we've done our duty kind of thing. And what I would say is if there's anyone who works with any institution that does liability pol- policies to make sure you have at least a million dollars coverage um, because you're doing it not only for your own institution, but you're doing it for the, the benefit of survivors in case something bad does happen to them. You want to make sure we need to start having a more detailed conversation about what the economics of um, sexual abuse, uh, sexual violence is, and universities need to start talking about it too, mm. because universities have have valued um, students at different levels, like male students because of athletic programs. If you average in the athletics, um, male students, the investment of um, of colleges in the students is much higher than female students. Mm. So there is already an inequity, and inequity results in violence, and inequity will result in sexual violence. So you can deal with sexual violence, but you can't deal with it in isolation. It has to be looked at from the perspective of people with skills for social analysis as well, including looking at the economic issues. Um, We have a faculty member, Jennifer Freyd, who has done amazing work and is nationally renowned and yet at the same time, I don't believe that the university has invested in her work in the same way that they have invested in some of our um, uh, uh, football coaches, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, she's more valuable. Right. And, um, and so, so shout out to her and her work and, um, and others who are doing great work there too. Um, so, and lastly, I guess the last thing I would say is that uh, there's some... A, uh, a counselor in Portland who's written a great book called The Trauma Toolkit, and her name is Susan Peace, P-E-A-C-E, Bannett, 
B-A-N-I-T-T. And if you are out there and you have are dealing with trauma, uh, particularly um, uh, dealing with uh, survival issues, and you want something that might might be helpful in your journey, uh, that book is a really good book. And if you can't afford it, get in touch with me, and I'll make sure you get it. So. Okay. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Warren. This right. has been an awesome conversation. I'm so glad we got to have it. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, and see you next week. Yep.